God's Love Language, a podcast designed for Christian discipleship with emphasis on developing our relationship and fellowship with God. Now, here is our host, Joe Enlo. Yes, that would be me. Thank you, Deanna, for that truly wonderful introduction. Hello, folks. Welcome back to God's Love Language. Remember, the love language of God is obedience. Obedience to His will and design for humankind. We must be doing the Lord's will in order to please Him, in order to live a truly fulfilling life with no regrets, or at least as few as humanly possible. We are approaching the beginning of my series on the importance and power of the family. That book it will be entitled God's Purpose for the Family. In it, I will argue that functional family interaction is paramount to Christianity and a key factor for humanity in God's story. Our foundation as a Christian should begin in our family of origin. We must seek to make it function in a godly manner or as closely as possible to how God intended. God creates everything for a purpose. Everything has to place, has its place and purpose. But we can only grasp that purpose when we see things from God's point of view, a God-centered worldview. After all, it is His creation, His plan, his idea. Please understand this, brothers and sisters. It is not about you or any other worldview or any other God with a little g without a God, capital G, centered worldview, seeing things from our Creator's perspective. We have to see the things from His perspective. Otherwise, few things will make sense and we can question everything that happens to us in this world. If you think about it, that's what the people do. It's like, well, I believe the world is for this and this and that. And so they can take it and look at it any way they want and apply any quote-unquote truth to it that they deem necessary or they deem to make them that is appropriate for them. You can create your own world, your own reality. If you have anything other than a godly worldview, you will make many mistakes like this trying to understand life and its purpose. There will be thousands of different worldviews and thousands of reality and so forth. A worldview that is not godly will fail to see how the Bible makes sense and will label it as hogwash. As the word says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I begin this episode talking about worldviews because of its importance to understand my messages. And I've also seen people arguing on social media about the validity of God, His Word, or if Jesus really existed or lived, and so forth. All the while they're arguing using data that does not include the study of the Bible itself, or using historical documents, or you know some facts that science has proven in archaeology, and so forth. They repeat the words of other fools, and I use the word fools because that is what the Bible calls people who ignore his word and wisdom and truth. But they repeat the words of these other fools in order to hear and believe what they want to, usually a worldview that supports their current lifestyle and sinful life. They even use arguments for their point of view that have long since been proven false. 
They search for answers far and wide, but the true answers to their questions only God can provide. Sadly, my many years in in the psychological field have shown me that most worldly souls will continue to seek until they find answers that align with their frame of mind. It is called in psychology confirmation bias, even to the point of pathological belief or the refusal to believe in something else despite evidence that supports it. And your conscience is the first evident maker, evidence provider, just looking and knowing that God had to create what we see. One thing I've found over many years in psychology also is that and when you do, because I always question if this was real myself. I'm, you know, I, I, I didn't know that this is real. So if you do a scholarly investigation, like using multiple sources, like the original Greek and Hebrew texts, because you know, there are some truth about English versions. There's so many different English versions that change words and so forth. But you need to always refer back to the original Greek and Hebrew texts. They are the closest to the original. Uh, you have to do this without bias and without preconceived results already in your mind and so forth. That's good. And that's good scholarly investigation. And it's uh, you explore the truth as much as possible this way. And the more you do it, the more that I have found that you do it, the more validity it gives to God and his word. The word of God is truth personified. Science is the pursuit of that truth, and that is why most scientific discoveries have to be updated continuously as new discoveries that shed light on God's truths are uncovered. Biology, neuroscience, and the medical field in general are just a few small examples of this. Proverb twelve fifteen says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And then 1 Corinthians 1.18-31 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. And that means that everything that God has given us, everything that is good, all keys to understanding is, is from grace, from God, is by grace from God. He allows it to all fit together. Only when you understand it from his worldview, does it all make sense? Just remember, there are hypocrites and false Christians among us. You bet your boots there are. That's one of the best ways to fight a war, in our case, a spiritual war. If you cannot stop a movement, then infiltrate it and lead them astray. But just because you have encountered one of these false leaders is no reason to call it quits and denounce God. On the contrary, if this infiltration by the enemy has happened, it is all the more reason to believe that God exists. Because if real Christianity lives, then the enemy must make an attempt to stop it. Otherwise, if it is not significant, why waste his time? That is apparently what happened at the beginning of the creation of humankind. Satan couldn't stop God from making us, but he could attempt to disrupt God's plan. That brings us to our topic at hand. Emphasis will be given to the relationships within the family unit, and we will show how functional familial interactions increase an individual's chances for success in both his or her walk as a Christian and as a member of humanity. That is a bold statement, but if you stay with me during these teachings, I believe the Holy Spirit will show you that I speak the truth. Now remember, I told you the five basic relationships were created in the order that I will be presenting them in this teaching series. Prior to breaking down each relationship, I told you that I'm going to spend some time talking about what families might have looked like if man would not have sinned in order to get a point of comparison. Obviously, this can only be done in theory, but in light of what God reveals in his word, we can make a reasonable conjecture. Let us begin our journey in the Garden of Eden. After God created Adam, he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work there. By the way, the creation of Adam was the first relationship created by God. Adam's relationship with God is what we call the individual relationship. And by implication, it is the most important one. Man was made to bring glory to God and, and the Trinity. Adam's understanding of his environment allowed him to see divine things clearly and truly. There were no errors or mistakes in his knowledge. His will appeared to have consented at once and in all things to the will of God. Your relationship with God and learning to be obedient to him is the basic building block of all the other relationships you have on this planet. If that individual relationship is skewed, then the other four relationships will be skewed also. Then all five of them are messed up. But more on that later. The Garden of Eden was God's habitation on earth. In the Bible, places that God inhabited were described like a garden or on tops of mountains, and sometimes both. There was a garden on the top of the mountain. After being created, Adam spent time with God on the earth, doing his job in the garden, seemingly without incident. As the only human, Adam had a one-on-one -on -one relationship and fellowship with God in Eden. This indicates that at least on occasion, he was in the presence of God in the garden. Life was good. It appeared that Adam had a God-centered worldview. He went about doing God's work. What God had instructed him to do 
We as Christians now, we strive to have a similar relationship with God, as close or at least as close to this as possible. We, we try to live for God and do what God tells us to do, do what he created us for. God is to be the first in our lives. Anything you deem more important than God will become as idolatry to you. That's one of the things God hates the most, you putting anything above him. Your first and lasting nature is spiritual. Let me say that again. Your first nature is spiritual. That's the only one that lasts. Second is your physical nature, and that is temporal. We will one day shed this physical body. We usually lose touch with God when we reverse the sequence. If we start living in the flesh and use the spiritual as a secondary mode, we, we try to please that flesh, and we end up losing touch spiritually until we start to crash and burn, and then we run back to God. Now, the statement by God in Genesis 2.18 has been misinterpreted by most people, at least the English-speaking world, for hundreds of years. It must be understood in the correct context. That's one of the things you do when you study the word, the Bible, too, is you have to make sure you get into the context of the situation. It's an unfallen context at this point. God, man has not sinned at this point. Man was still without sin and having daily fellowship with God. That is the state we as Christians are striving for now. Man was not lonely in the sense that we think about being alone, for he was not alone or without fellowship, nor was he depressed. He had an assignment and was accomplishing his mission on earth to that point. He had food and all his needs met by God. He was, he, if he was lonely then what does that say about being in the presence of our God, our Creator, what we are all striving for? It says that that would not be enough for us and that we are wasting our time and efforts now. May it never be, right? I mean, if, if he was with God and interacting with God, but if still lonely, what are we wasting our time for? Again, may it never be. Here is what it really meant. The being of man by himself is not good. That's what it meant. The meaning of good must be defined contextually within the context of creation in which God instructs humankind to be fruitful and multiply. The man alone cannot comply. Being alone prevents the man from fulfilling the design of creation and therefore is not good. In other words, for man to be fruitful and multiply, there must be someone to be fruitful and multiply with. The next words in the Bible after Genesis 2.18 were, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper for him. They seem to be out of place at first. Then as we continue to read, it makes sense. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds and to the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So, Adam was naming these creatures while studying their nature to see if one would make a good mate for him. None was found. You know, when I first started studying these passages, I was like, what in the world? Man is lonely, so God tries to hook him up with an animal? That is so weird. Here is what we discovered. 
Because of the dominion mandate, let them have dominion over the lower creation, all the animals on the earth. Adam possessed an insight into nature and created animals as well as their purpose. He was therefore able to name and to rule the animals God brought forth to him. The process of naming something indicated authority over what you are naming. Like when you name your children or when you, or you name your pets, for example. That is why God named us and not the other way around. Adam's unfallen state had insight and he was capable of development into the higher knowledge of culture and science. The words, let them have dominion, do not define the image of God, but indicate the result of possessing that image. He is an imager of God. Remember, that is a status. Adam ruled the animals because God ordained it when he created man as an imager. Man was commissioned to rule by the authority God gave him when he assigned man the status of an imager. In Psalm 8, 5 through 8, it's in the New American Standard Bible, it says, Thou hast made him but little lower than God. Some versions say little lower than angels, but that the Hebrew word is Elohim. That name is used for God. And, that, and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yes, and the beasts of the field. Before we discuss the creation of Eve, have you ever wondered why the tempter, Satan, did not approach Adam before he was split? You know, before God split the Adam, A-D-A-M. Now, that is some deep thinking. Why wait until the female was made? Why not just go to Adam? Again, the word does not have a direct answer, and truly the Bible is not meant to be a detailed history book or a book of detailed events when it comes to creation. Anyway, Adam seemed to be doing all that the Lord wanted him to do, and he seemed to be functioning well. Remember, Adam had free will at this point, and he was able to question God at any moment about anything, but he just seemed to be content with cooperating with God. Now, as Adam established his headship over the animals by naming them and studying their nature, Adam also had to realize that he was a very unique creation, that in all the earth was not found any living creature that would serve as a helper, or a mate, or a wife. Again, I would refer you to the whole of Psalm chapter 8, where it describes God's glory and the dignity of man. We are special, special creation. This also affirms the belief that we are not just an animal, but something more, an imager of God above the level of an animal. And I'm sorry to inform some of you, but your pet animal is not like having human children. I know sometimes you feel some of you really rely on your pets and you love them. They're good companions, but they are not human. So the only thing left to do was to either create another capable human or a female version of a capable human created separately or to create one out of the created human the one that was already there adam and verse 21 it says so the lord caused god excuse me so the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place the lord god fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman. I used to get around and said, if they spoke English, that's why she was named woman, because he saw her and goes, whoo, man, woman, you know. But anyway, I digress. She shall be called woman. Adam shows off his intellectual skills again by understanding the nature and purpose of the woman. His God-given abilities allow for this. It appears he had wisdom beyond what humans have today. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh have no hidden meanings. They mean what you probably think they do. Bone means the essence of our essential nature of a thing, a marker of which something consists as the same same body, and formerly its bone, uh, i.e. the total mass of a person, including the bones and all other tissue and fluids. Flesh means a term used to indicate relationship. It is used as a basic element in the so-called relationship formula in Genesis 2.23. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And thus, in the, in the sense of my own kinsmanship or kinsman, they are relative. The whole body of a single being. All right. So now God has created for man a helper, a mate, and a wife. Have you ever wondered why God just did not make a separate woman from the dust of the earth like he made man? You might not have. I have never heard anyone else but myself ask this question, but I believe there are some of you out there. It appears God made both male and female animals at the same time, so why not humans? Obviously, there is no direct answer to this question in the Bible, but we can only deduce the answer from looking at the creation story, at the nature of animals and humans, and at hints from the word itself. Traditionally, helper, the English word helper, because it can connote so many different ideas, does not accurately convey the connotation of the Hebrew word ezer. Usage of the Hebrew term does not suggest a subordinate role, a connotation which English helper can have. In the Bible, God is frequently described as the helper, the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, the one who meets our needs. In this context, the word seems to express the idea of an indispensable companion. The woman should or would supply what the man was lacking in the design of creation, and logically it would follow that the man would supply what she was lacking, although that is not stated here. The Hebrew expression literally means according to the opposite of him. Translations that use words such as suitable for, like the NASB and the NIV, matching, corresponding to, all capture the idea. Translations that render the phrase simply partner, like the NEB or the NRSV, while not totally inaccurate, do not reflect the nuance, the nuance of correspondence and or suitability. The man's form and, the, and nature are matched by the woman's as she reflects him and complements him. Together they correspond. In short, this prepositional phrase indicates that she has everything that God has invested in him. The significance of this phrase, help meet, is that the woman is a creation who is a fitting and proper companion for Adam because she is like him and corresponds to him. This concept is further solidified by the description of the creation of woman as being formed 
from the rib of Adam. A rib being a metaphor for a person corresponding to Adam. Modern prophets have taught that the creation of woman from the rib of the man is to be taken figuratively. The proper role of the man and woman is clarified in the scriptural injunction that they should leave their parents and cleave unto each other and become one flesh. The oneness of the man and the woman, as described by these two phrases, refers to more than just an act of procreation. They are to each leave their parents who have cared and provided for them both physically and spiritually and now corresponding to each other are to help, care for, and nurture each other. Now, I do not know if you caught this, but we have just talked about why woman was not created separately, but from man. And we hit on how men and women are alike and how they are different, differences that are God-ordained for a reason. Now, and it will also tell us why we become one flesh. The bad news? You're going to have to wait until the next episode to hear my full explanation. Sorry about that. So, until next time, may God bless you and keep you. May he reveal his mysteries to you. May his light shine upon you. May you and your family be blessed. Thank you for listening to today's teaching. If you would like more information about our podcast and subject matter, or if you would like to leave a comment, go to godslovelanguage.com, or you may email Joe at jnlo at godslovelanguage.com.